Namaste, yoga podcast listeners. I am so delighted, excited, and totally, totally over the moon about all of the information that I will be sharing with yoga podcast listeners over the next several months. So I am currently doing pre-recordings for a yoga teacher training or personal yoga development and immersion course that I am offering that is specific to anatomy and physiology. And it is perfect for those of us who wish to learn how to apply yoga to our bodies and potentially others if you have an interest in teaching yoga. Now, obviously, in a teacher training or an immersion program, there are hours upon hours upon hours of content, but I am condensing in some of these modules that I'm providing to my students some really important information, which I have shared over the last five years on Yoga Podcast throughout all the many episodes. But here you are, you can have some really consolidated information given to you. So stay tuned as you will be getting some really fun ways to consider your practice and to really get you thinking a little bit deeper about how you can apply yoga to your body. Ah! Isn't that wonderful? All right. I hope you enjoy. If you are interested in learning more about yoga teacher trainings or immersion programs, please do not hesitate to review the show notes and look at the information. Reach out to me. I am always offering something and I will have more to come in the future as well. So get on my mailing list, subscribe, and I will be in touch with you. Namaste. Namaste, yogis. Welcome. My name is Brie Morena de Santos. I am one of the Yoga by Julia Yoga School trainers. And during this particular cohort, I will be focusing on anatomy and physiology. You will be meeting with me once a month for the next several months on Saturdays. And I am so, so, so delighted. Now, I have been with Yoga by Julia since 2013. So I celebrated my 10th year anniversary last July, which is really exciting. I've had a lot of different roles at Yoga by Julia from being studio manager to working with brand new yoga for beginners, doing special workshops. And it has been so much fun working with Julia. She is one of those humans that can just completely give your soul a hug. And I know you all have felt that. So I am doing some special recordings for this particular training because I believe that anatomy and physiology is very, very detailed. And I want to make sure that you have the information done in a very concise way. I'm also a little bit of a perfectionist when it comes to teaching and giving lectures. And this is my profession anyway. I recently finished my doctorate in education, and my main focus is working with school districts on including different diverse techniques in their curriculum, as well as working with somatic therapies, including yoga, with my specialty being in trauma-informed yoga, or just trauma-informed education in general. Now, my yoga background is I have 
a few 200-hour teacher trainings under my belt in different disciplines, as well as a 300-hour. And I have an 800-hour yoga therapy certification through the International Association of Yoga Therapists, which is not very common, although is becoming a little bit more common. I believe about 10 years ago, there was like two yoga therapists in the state of New Mexico. And um, now you're starting to see a lot more trainings happening and a lot more opportunity. And the difference between becoming a Yoga Alliance member or just Attending a 200-hour yoga teacher training or even a 300-hour yoga teacher training is that you're really going to be really super proficient in working with your students and applying yoga to them and applying them to yoga, right? Whereas when we work in the yoga therapy field, we are able to really dive deeper into case study work and being able to utilize Ayurvedic practices and working with yoga as a tool or even other somatic therapies, depending on what your background is, but utilizing yoga more as a tool to help heal the body. And and heal the mind, of course. And as we all know, yoga does this intuitively. So I'm really, really excited. Um, I have a history in cellular biology, and I teach anatomy and physiology, doula training. Um, I work with nurses. So I have a lot I hope to offer to this training. And I said all of that so that you can have a really good consensus of what I'm hoping to bring into the 200-hour training. Now, 200-hour trainings is just the scratch of the surface, so it should encourage you to want to learn more, 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 more. We are all lifetime students of this beautiful philosophy of yoga. And whether you've been practicing for many, many moons or you're very new to this, either way, you are here because it has called you. And yoga is on and off of the mat and you are going to just be filled with so much information. Just let it flow through you like water. What will stick and what resonates where you are in your life right now will be intuitive. You will have this beautiful introspection and everything will sort of make sense when it needs to. Now, when we think about anatomy and physiology with yoga in particular, especially at this level, I want to make sure that you have a really good general takeaway and we don't try to get you to where you're pre-med, you know, like I've definitely seen those types of trainings where we can get lost in the weeds and then when you're actually out there teaching yoga, you're not quite sure how to make that connection, how to bridge what you learned about, you know, maybe something distal or some sort of muscle or bone. (laughs) It's like, how do I apply that to the philosophy of yoga? So what I'm hoping to do is give you a really beautiful oversight with some really specific ideas and concepts that you can apply immediately. Like the moment you hear about it, you can apply it to your own personal practice. Your notes will make sense to you several months from now. You won't feel like you are in grad school, like I said, pre-med. We're not trying to accomplish that. But what we do want to accomplish is a beautiful sense that you understand the human body as it pertains to yoga. 
And that's the point. (laughs) Now, I also will touch a little bit on things that happen in the brain, the nervous system from a mental health perspective. You know, I have a background in trauma-informed practices and trauma therapy. So that's really important to me. I really believe that trauma's in the body. And even if we know all of the lingo and we have a general idea of how the yoga pose shows up in the body, it's really surprising to realize when you're actually working with humans, (laughs) imagine that, that they're not going to actually be these cookie-cutter bodies and and mental capacities that you're so-called expecting, right? We want to be able to be well-rounded with the mind-body connection. And the other trainers in this cohort are so fabulous because you're going to learn about yoga, the way that it has shown up for you most likely on your mat. And I am going to have the opportunity to get you to think about yoga from a perspective that maybe you never have or you haven't really stopped and and asked yourself these really deep whys from a true perspective of how yoga meets you on the mat, how it illuminates your body, how it makes that true connection. Why do we consider yoga to be a relaxer? You know, why do we even think about the fact that yoga is this healing modality? I mean, it's it's magical for sure. I believe in that. But it's also scientific, right? And there's an art to it that you will eventually be able to finesse through your lenses, through your experiences, which is beautiful. And we need you. If you're not sure if you want to teach yoga and you're doing this to deepen your practice, first of all, that is the entire point anyway. But the the goal is to guide. The goal is to lead and to encourage and to, you know, co-create with others to help them regulate their emotions and to be in partnership and, and be a part of the collective in a much deeper way. Yoga has changed us all and learning how to apply yoga to others outside of self and to show up off of the mat as a true yogi, especially in this modern world, in this modern sense, is so beautiful and healing and advantageous in ways that, (sighs) I I know I'm preaching to the choir, let's just put it that way. (laughs) So what can you expect from me? Well, Because I am teaching this particular subject, and we've never done this at YBJ's yoga school in this fashion where we've used anatomy and physiology as a main topic for one instructor over the entire course. We've, of course, had an instructor do modalities in this um, arena, but I will be the first that actually dedicates my entire teaching time under the umbrella of A&P. So it's going to be really exciting and also it's going to give me the opportunity to expand beyond the science in a lot of ways. In addition to, because of this, I am going to be doing special recordings for my lectures as well as doing Zoom and video because, of course, we're talking about the body. We're doing a lot of demonstrations. So I just want to make sure that everyone feels like they have a reference and they can go back to it. 
Now, the way that Yoga by Julia has set up the online and the makeup and the going back and checking out the resources is very specific and I honor all that Julia has done in that realm. But I hope that even if you have visited me live in session, that you could still utilize these courses and be able to go back to them in the future as well. I will be providing links to all of these courses. I will give you all in person information about that. And you can always reach out to me during this training and after if you have any questions, need clarifications, need to case study something. I mean, we're learning theory, but when you get out there in the practical world, you're going to see that things are a little bit different when you're actually applying them to others and even to self. So you will get out of this as much as you want, as much as you can have capacity for. Do not judge yourself. You have a life. You have things that are going to come up over the next several months. We're all adults. We all have responsibilities and we all need to honor that first and foremost. So just be patient with yourself. Let the information kind of seep into your bones, <laughs> to your tissues, into your body, and just sleep on it and let it go. And then little by little, you will remember things from your other places where you've been a student, where you've had life experiences, and you'll be able to apply that in real world in real time. And you will see that you actually know a lot more about this than you probably realize and or give yourself credit for. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Let's get going. Namaste. As we begin today's session, let's talk about body awareness. You are really going to be called to check in with yourself from this day forward every time you practice yoga beyond just feeling the effects that yoga has on you and you just feeling euphoric and relaxed and strong and, you know, confident and accomplished. That is beautiful. And that is why when we are practicing yoga as students, right, we want to lean into all of those emotions and feelings and be totally present. However, you are now in yoga school <laughs> and we want to take every moment we can to check in and really evaluate and ask ourselves some really deep questions as we practice. Now, you have lots of different ways of doing this, right? You can just do it intuitively. You can check in with yourself as you're practicing. You can make little mental notes, physical notes, non-judgment notes, of course. You can journal. You can reflect later. However you choose to do this, I invite this to be your ongoing homework throughout your teacher training. Now, when your training has been completed, please try to disconnect from doing this on the regular and get back to that place where you can really just enjoy your practice and just feel the pose in your body. But for now, let's try to utilize our best subject, <laughs> ourselves, right? So you have a body. <laughs> you know your body better than anybody else. Even if you don't know your body as well as you wish or want to, you still know it better than anyone else. So you are in the first line of defense to be able to make some really great 
really take in some great information and reflect and evaluate and, and create some empirical data on that information and really decide what that means. So what am I talking about? That might have all sounded really like, whoo, what is she what is she saying here? So let me break that down a little bit. So one of the things we tend to do when we start to learn about yoga and the capacity that you are learning about yoga now is we try to compare and contrast. You know, so we think about, well, what do I need and how do I offer that to someone else? So I have tight shoulders. How do I help other people release tight shoulders? I have sciatica. How do I learn how to release that in my own body and then help other people do that? And guess what? That is a beautiful thing. That is step one. I mean, once we really dive deep into our own bodies, our own own observations and issues and ailments and all of the things and we want to heal thyself, then we can very well start to apply that to others. And that's the thing I love about somatic practices such as yoga. It actually encourages us to treat ourselves as the patient first, as our first client. And there are not many disciplines that do that. You know, typically, if you happen to be a physical therapist or a nurse or a physician, you name it, you're taught and you learn to think about other first. And in many times, that burnout, that feeling of giving yourself away and not being able to have self-care really shows up fast. And it's because, well, you've become a servant to others, beautifully, of course, and, and we're all very grateful for those who have taken that step and that leap. What yoga teaches us, especially yoga school, is how do we do that for self first? And that's what I want your homework to be for the next several months. So every time your hands and feet or any other body part touches the earth, touches the yoga mat, I want you to think of that as a pillar. Like you are the bridge and whatever's on the earth is the pillars, keeping you grounded, keeping you connected, engaging your muscles, encouraging you to feel parts of your body that we don't really pay attention to. You know, if you're standing up listening to this recording right now, you're not thinking about how the bottoms of your feet feel in your shoe. I mean, unless they're in pain. And that's the thing. Pain is the one physical feature that gets us thinking really deeply about the situation we're in physically or mentally, of course, right? But how do we do that without that trigger, without needing to feel like the needle prickling our skin? Well, we want to look for it. We want to invite that feeling into our body. Now, I'm going to weave some of my trauma therapy, trauma studies, and, and trauma education throughout, just so you can keep that parallel in the back of your mind. Try not to overthink and overanalyze when we're talking about trauma, because it could take you really into a whole nother world. And I specifically teach a trauma-informed yoga certification course with um, YBJ, as well as, um, you know, directly. So, there's an opportunity to learn and deep dive into that at the end of this training, which Julia and I will most definitely share with everyone. And if you're listening to this on Yoga Podcast, you know how to reach me and learn more about this through iloveyogatherapy.org. So I digress. So when a body part is touching the earth, we want to really make sure that we are 
paying attention to what that feels like. So let me give you a few examples. Imagine yourself just sitting on your mat in pretzel pose, also known as easy pose, right? Or maybe it's half lotus, full lotus. You pick your seated posture. And in doing so, we might just be sitting there, maybe not really cognizant or really physically aware of what's happening in the body in that moment. But imagine, and and if you like, you can even follow along with this exercise or just create it in the mind, which I don't want to go too off topic, but visualization and thinking about what your body is doing as I'm describing it has a similar effect on the nervous system as actually doing the thing. So your nervous system is memorizing it as if it's done it. And that also happens in a negative way, not just in a positive way. So it's really fascinating how even just imagining your body in the position I'm about to describe is almost just as effective as doing it. So anyway, a little food for thought there if you haven't already thought about that or practiced that in the past. That is one of those tips that athletes get and, and try to do, you know, in between their training sessions, they try to visualize and think about, you know, hitting that jump shot or, you know, diving deep or whatever it is they're doing, right? Okay, as I was saying, when we think about the body parts touching the mat, touching the earth in easy pose, we want to consider and really ask ourselves, what is touching the earth right now? Your sit bones, maybe for some it's, you know, edges of their feet if they're not in lotus. Maybe it's even for some who have really open hips, really um, deep external rotation through the hips, through the thighs. Maybe their knees can even touch the earth, right? Maybe your hands are on the mat so that you are kickstanding and holding yourself up. Maybe not. But Imagine all those different points of your body pressing into the earth. And normally you're just probably sitting there. Maybe you're thinking about somewhere else in the body when you're practicing, when you're, maybe you're just focusing on your breath. But imagine thinking about what part of my body is supporting me right here, right now. What part of my body is grounded? So now imagine yourself in downward facing dog. You have your palms of your hands pressed into the mat, maybe every pad of the tips of your fingers, maybe your entire hand is pressed into the earth, maybe you're on knuckles and your knuckles are pressed into the mat, maybe your forearms are down for the dolphin variation and your forearms and palms and fingers are pressing into the earth all the way to the elbows, right? Maybe the tippy toes are pressing into the mat, maybe your entire foot all the way to the heel is pressed into the earth, right? Now drop your knees. So now your knees are on the mat. Maybe the tops of your feet are now on the mat. Maybe just your toes if they're tucked. Maybe you're in tabletop posture now. And now step your right foot back, step your left foot back, and now you're in plank. So now your tippy toes are pressed into the earth. Your hands are pressed into the mat. Maybe you drop your forearms and you're in a forearm plank, right? And then let's say we go into Sphinx or Cobra and we drop our belly, we flatten our feet, we drop our knees, and now our belly's touching the earth all the way through the tops of our thighs. Maybe we press the mat away from us, we lift our thighs off of the mat for up dog, or like I like to say, a little sill on the rock with a ball on the tip of the nose. (laughs) 
teaching children's yoga has um, made me very creative with how to describe poses to the point where I don't even remember what, you know, the more common names are for poses unless I really go back and review after a while. So anyway, so now you can have a new visual and imagine what's touching the mat, right? So whatever's touching the mat, that should be where your intention goes first. So next time you practice yoga, I will invite you to take your awareness to, well, what's touching the mat right now? And it should take a moment. It should take a breath, right? You're in down dog. Oh, my hands are really grounded here. My toes are touching. And then you can move on to breathing. You can move on to where your gisti is, your your eye gaze. How does your neck feel? Where are your shoulders? Is my jaw released, right? You can you can move on to all of those cues that you're going to eventually learn to offer yourself, right? I tell my students One of the neatest things about taking a teacher training or a yoga school immersion program is you actually can just roll out your mat anywhere or do only standing poses, whatever it is. You're in the middle of a forest, middle of the airport, (laughs) you name it. And you can just go through those points. You can do a series of two or three poses. You can ground yourself. You can feel your body pressing into the mat or your feet into the earth. You can feel the energy around you. You can kind of check in with which chakra you're activating if that is a part of your energetic practice. You can focus on your pradyan practice or your yoga breath. You can really, you know, if you're working with bandhas, which you'll learn a lot about during this program, you will be able to take yourself through this and only need a couple of poses and you have just practiced such a beautiful moment of yoga asana or a few of the limbs of the eight limbs of yoga. You can incorporate that in five to 30 to 60 to 75 minutes if you want versus just going through the motions, doing a 20 minute, 30 minute, whatever flow, you know, feeling like you did something physical, which is great and which is really warranted by most of us, right? Especially, you know, from couch to yogi kind of thing. But we want to go deeper. We want to feel like, what is, what are our shoulders doing right now? Like, where are my hips? You know, do I feel aligned? Do I feel like, you know, I'm aggravating a nerve or straining a muscle, right? Now, look how different that practice can show up on the mat for you. So I think that's just really exciting, at least from the perspective that we're learning through my sessions. It's like, sure, after a while, those things are going to memorize to your body. You're going to hit the mat. You're going to ground your body into the earth. You're going to do all of those things intuitively, instinctively. And then you can focus on a lot of the other stuff, a lot of the fun breath work and meditative practices and even the esoteric side of things, right? Where you're really diving deep into the energies and and the magic of a practice like yoga. Yoga is an ancient, ancient philosophy and there are many, many disciplines under this big umbrella. You know, there are vinyasa flows and hatha yoga, which you'll learn a lot more about what those mean if not already. But there's like yin yoga, restorative yoga. There is different lineages through the hot yoga world. There is ashtanga yoga, which is like the gymnastics of yoga in a lot of ways. There's yoga with set series and yoga that works with um, ancient 
Chinese and Japanese lineages that are outside of the eight limbs of yoga, according to Patanjali, which is the East Indian um, variation. There is, you know, yoga that comes from Egypt and Africa, the comedic variations of yoga. So there's a lot out there. There's more spiritual variations of yoga. There's more physical variations of yoga. And then there's modern westernized yoga. And it's all beautiful. There's no judgment. There's no quote unquote copyright. Like yoga is for every body. And that's how I see it. Now, one of the neat things is once you get into yoga, you can decide to work with certain populations, you know, whatever it is that matters to you. I know for me, it has changed and evolved and grown and things that used to really matter to me have dissipated and I have matured beyond things I used to love and I have not been able to do things that I used to love. (laughs) You know, it's like your practice will evolve because you're human and you're evolving. Maybe right now you love a really powerful dynamic vinyasa flow that's 75 minutes, six days a week, right? And maybe in three years, you will need prenatal yoga or you will love a good restorative class or you will like holding your poses for multiple breaths and just really hunkering down into the poses. It's all beautiful. It's all wonderful, right? Maybe you will just love meditation and that will be your jam. Maybe you'll just love teaching pratyam practice. I've seen it all. I love it all. Right now, one of my favorite things to do is the singing bowls. I love playing singing bowls. I love creating sound bath workshops. I love that world so much because sound is so healing. So just be open to it all. Allow yourself to embrace whatever may come up. And also allow yourself to not feel very comfortable and familiar and encouraged with some disciplines as well. And maybe you'll never ever dip your toe into those places. Maybe you will. Just allow yourself to be you. That's what's most important. So there's some Portions of the body that will 100% of the time dictate the practice for yourself and for others. So let's bring our awareness to our neck. Our neck is very fragile, right? It has to hold our big old head on top of it. <laughs> you know, it is, it's connected to our spine. Our spine is definitely, you know, like, the ruler of the body in a lot of ways. The neck houses the thyroid, right? Which I call the air traffic controller of our hormones. And there's a lot going on in that space. And we need a lot of protection of the spine. We want our core to be strong. We want our body to be relaxed. We want our spine to be fluid. We want to be able to have good posture. And good posture lends itself to stronger hips. And stronger hips lend itself to helping us support the body and and really support the knees. And I mean, everything is connected. I don't know if you remember that old kids song, you know, the hip bones connected to the dun dun, right? Well, I want you to think about that from a yogic perspective. So now take your awareness back to your neck 
and then to the shoulders. The shoulders is where many people carry a lot of stress. That's why they say you carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. And the shoulders can get out of alignment. You know, one shoulder could be a little bit higher than the other. Sometimes this is a genetic predisposition, an old injury, um, a way of carrying posture. We tend to lean into one side of the body. There are also some anatomical purposes and reasons why we tend to do that a little bit here and there. Um, If you think about it, our heart's on our left side. We have our organs distributed throughout the body, but we do carry some additional weight on the left side of the body. And so sometimes we tend to lean to the right and favor the right to kind of try to even out the left. And we really have to work hard. Sometimes we are more dominant um, due to sports or due to driving even or how we carry our bags or children or what have you where we end up out of alignment very quite frequently, actually. Also, when we're sitting at our desk typing or whatever it is that you do, you're walking around a lot, our bodies are always looking for opportunities to do something more efficiently. And what's more efficient? Well, not deep you know, belly breaths, more superficial breathing is more efficient for the body. It's not healthier for the body, but it is efficient. You know, we're not giving up all that hydration because we're taking these deep inhalations and deep exhalations. You know, we're on autopilot with our breath. We're not needing to think about it, right? As well with the body. So the body doesn't want to try to hold this statuesque, you know, posture all day as we walk around and, you know, we're like soldiers trained. No, it wants to figure out little nuanced ways to relax, right? So maybe there's a bend in the knee or two. Maybe the tail sticks out a little. Maybe the belly folds a certain way. Maybe the tailbone comes in. Maybe the pelvic tilts or the shoulders lean. Maybe we do something, cock the neck to the side a little bit, you know? We do things to make our bodies feel a little bit more comfortable in its daily life. And then, you know, we pick up bad habits, And lots of reasons, right? So the reason doesn't matter. It's just understanding that there are a lot of reasons. And what is your reason is maybe not the reason for someone else. But at the end of the day, we want to bring awareness to it. So the neck, the shoulders, and then, of course, we discuss the spine. So now take your awareness to your hips. You can put your hands on your hips try to squeeze until you could feel your hip bones, right? And some of us have different ways that we just hold our body. I tend to hold my body a little bit like a duck. So I like stick my tail out a little bit just intuitively. And reasons that are really unknown, maybe having more of a a dance background, I don't know, but I do a bit of a a pelvic tilt in that direction. Some people do a pelvic tilt in the opposite direction where they tuck their tailbone down and bring their glutes in. They lift their pelvis up and they tend to walk almost like they're leading with their chest or their belly and they're leaning back a little. Sometimes this is overcorrection and this can show up where you feel like your body feels like in time and space it's erect, but really you're doing like a lean back. And you see this with male bodies um, a little bit more than female bodies, but you also see it with females who maybe have like a larger chest um, or may have um, like the way that their shoulders are shaped 
if their shoulders are a little bit more delicate and softer, they might tend to lean back. This could also depend on how we tend to hold our arms, where we put them. If we uh, have learned to like take our arms behind us, you know, out of respect or anything like that, right? So there doesn't matter again the why, but just acknowledging that some people have a pelvic tilt forward or as I say to 12 o'clock and some people have a pelvic tilt to six o'clock. Rarely do we stay neutralized all day, every day, right? Even when we're sitting in our chairs or sitting in our car, our pelvic tends to tilt in a direction. And then that's going to affect, of course, the lower back through the lumbar spine. And so if you take your hands on your hips and you imagine that your pelvic or your pelvis is or even your belly is like a big bowl and it's raining outside and you want to capture all that rain in your bowl, you're going to tilt your pelvis up. You're going to drive your hips with your hands on the hips up to 12 o'clock up towards your belly, up toward the sky, up toward the rain. You're going to collect that rain and then you're going to tilt your pelvis down to six o'clock or stick your tail out behind you like a little duck, quack, quack, right? And you're going to dump that water, that rain on to your beautiful flower or vegetable garden right below you. And so as you tilt back and forth, noticing how your glutes are flexing, noticing how tight your hamstrings may be, even your quadriceps, Throughout your legs may affect where your pelvic is tilting, depending on that as well. And so you have to just kind of generally find what your neutral pelvis is today. And that can change daily, weekly, whatever. If you run, bike, do any of those types of really quad and hamstring dominant sports, do a lot of like jumping, anything of that nature, then you're probably always going to be really tight through the glutes, tight through the hips. Um, Not necessarily the hips always, but usually there's a lot of support from the quads and hammies. And sometimes they're not even, um, they're not evened out, I should say, with the quads and the hammies. So depending on your sport or your athletic endeavor of choice, you might be really quad dominant and really hammy weak or really hamstring dominant and quad weak, or maybe you have really open hips and you don't have a lot of um, dominance in your, you know, large muscles through the legs. There's a lot of things that can happen here. And they all have plus and minuses, right? Really open hips is awesome. You probably are able to do a lot of the yoga poses that show up really easily. You could do a lot of twists, binds, things of that nature when your hips are really open, you might balance better. Yoga's probably really shows up for you, which is why we see, you know, former dancers, ballet dancers in particular, all the trainers in this cohort have a history in ballet, which is really fascinating. You see that throughout yoga. Gymnastics or gymnasts um, tend to flock because the poses show up in the body intuitively, right? This was These were things you were taught and have already been doing, the flexibilities, all of that. Here's the catch-22, though. What you have already in the body, we need to do like a counter pose for. And so if you're very flexible, we need to teach you strength. And if you have a lot of strength, a lot of 
muscular strength in the body, we need to kind of elongate and stretch out those muscles. That's why when you work with like a bodybuilder, for instance, they might have all that power, all that strength. They can lift their body up. All of that's really great, but they're really tight, right? The muscles are really, really tight. Whereas you might have a really flexible human and they can go into full monkey pose, which is like full splits and all of that fun stuff. But if not careful, if not supporting those joints and those that flexibility, that rotation and not ever, you know, you're always externally rotating, you're always opening things up, but we don't ever close things back, you know? So we want to make sure that there is a perfect balance that we can offer ourselves or others when we're thinking about asana, when we're thinking about the physical postures and moving the body through them. So there's that. Now we talked about the neck, shoulder, spine, hips, the pelvic girdle, right? The pelvis. So the pelvic girdle includes like the pelvis, the hips, all of it, but you can subset that out, right? The hips or the pelvis. And then last but certainly not least, the knees, right? And yoga is a very knee-centric practice. Like we spend a lot of time on our knees. Now, there's lots of props and different ways to go about that, which um, does make the practice more palatable for those who have knee issues. But if you suffer from, you know, creaky, creaky knees, you know, um, you have old knee injuries or even, you know, things that are like old ACL meniscus tears or just what people consider, quote unquote, bad knees, right? Our knees really do age us. <laughs> you know, our knees are like, look, you might look like this in the face or whatever. You might be a really strong athletic person. You might be really fit, but I'm your knees and I'm going to show you exactly where you stand in life. So they are a huge dictator of what's going on with our bodies physically. And so yoga does do a lot of healing of the body, right? I know for me, I used to have a lot of different issues with my knees back in the day for lots of reasons, um, from dance, from running, you know, just beating my body up as as most people do before they realize like, oh my gosh, <laughs> did I do that to my body? And uh oh, it's too late, right? Like the pain and the injury and the ailment is our barometer. There's definitely a reaction, not a proaction. So when we think about that, when we are faced with these knees, then the knees are, you know, not wanting to bend or not wanting to you know, do the work that we are thinking they need to do in a yoga practice. One of the things that I'm hoping that I really convey through the next few months is that when you really properly rotate through other parts of your muscles and you learn to relax your nervous system, and breath is one of those ways we do that, but there's other modalities, and we can calm down the body, create the heat in the body, the ajni. The beauty is that we don't really need the knees to do all the work. We don't need to twist at the knees ever. We don't need to rest on the knees ever. There are little tips and tricks to release the energy in the knees, to release the muscles in the knees. Now, of course, if you're on your knees, right, if you are, you know, doing tabletop, there's ways to protect your knees with like blankets under your knees and that sort of thing. You may have to take a little bit more time standing up from a, a down position. But in a general, 
there's ways to keep the body moving. For instance, just to give you a quick example that you can really see in the mind. When you're in down dog, you know, down dog is really all about the spine, but yogis tend to, practitioners tend to make it all about the legs, all about those hills touching the earth, right? And really it's, it's how do we support the body so that we can be in the inversion, right? We'll talk about in a moment. We could be upside down. Our head is below the heart, right? How do we support that action where we're now starting to get a little dizzy and all of that? Well, our hands are placed there. We're really supporting ourselves through our toes. For some, through the heels of their feet. For others, not so much, right? If you have really tight backs of the legs. But you can hold that pose statically, right? You can just stay in that pose and breathe through it. Or you can, you know, sort of pedal through the pose. You can wiggle your hips a little bit. You could take one leg up and down. You can undulate or move the body through by just shifting through the toes, swaying from side to side. And for some, constant movement helps the the achy, ellie body, right? For others, static poses helps the body. It's really just offering all the options to yourself and to others. So to recap, if you or anybody has injuries that are in the neck, shoulders, spine, hips, you know, um, pelvis, knees, or any ailments, or just tightness, just, you know, opposition from daily life stuff, that's going to dictate the practice 100% of the time, period, or exclamation mark, I should say. And we have to honor and respect that, right? So everything, every pose, every, you know, modification, every adaptive way that we can offer that pose through props, through the wall, through chairs, through whatever's available is warranted because those are sensitive areas of the body. And we want to treat those areas of the body with the utmost respect and allow those areas of the body to decide when and if they're going to loosen up or become available to the pose. When in doubt, however, it's always best to create a new way of offering whatever it is that you are trying to accomplish with said pose for the body, other than just creating a cool shape with the body, right? Um, offering that in a different way. And so during this program, my goal, my challenge and mission is to make sure you understand that these three poses all offer similar things to the body or to the mind. And those connections is what matters. So maybe making your body in a shape of a dancer pose, a standing dancer pose is a beautiful, you know, social media post. But what are we trying to accomplish in that pose? What does that pose represent beyond the challenge and complexity and difficulty of the pose, which in turn does bring us into the present more deeply in a lot of ways? But how can we from an anatomical and physiology way or physiological way, be able to apply whatever that pose is doing in another variation pose like flamingo, which is a still a challenging pose, but not as difficult and more accessible to more bodies. And then maybe some bodies can't do that. What else could we offer that could still work through those muscles, work through those binds, work through those balance challenges, work to bring the body present? Now, I must say 
that we're all on a spectrum. So when you're new to something or you're tired that day, or even it could change when you're practicing in the morning from practicing at night or practicing after work from practicing on a Saturday or whatever the case may be, can inform how alert and how difficult and challenging something may be in that moment. But nonetheless, whatever it may be, we all are on a spectrum of what that is to bring us to the present moment. So perhaps one day, down dog is very challenging for my body. Maybe I feel very weak or I feel very tired or just the inversions hitting me differently. Or maybe you're working with someone who has like vertigo and we need to give them different options instead of just going into an inversion, which is going to really heighten that trigger of vertigo, that dizziness, that disconnection, right? But Whatever it may be and whatever your your expertise is at that time, because it will evolve, right? What you'll offer in a year from now is going to be very different than what you will probably offer from five years from now, right? And that's okay too. So the idea is that whatever it is when we're on the spectrum of our practice on any given day is where we are and what we need to become present and to be able to bring ourselves into a meditative state, a moving meditation in many cases through a typical studio asana practice. So what I'm trying to say is maybe one day down dog is plenty and enough and maybe another day a Headstand is what is needed for you to get to that heightened sense of awareness and and peeking at your particular practice that day. For another person, it might be a handstand. For another, it might be legs up the wall. I mean, the point being is that it is always moving. It's a moving target. It's always on a spectrum. And chances are, even if you feel like you're the most advanced physically, mentally, spiritually practiced yogi, there's still probably nuances and and ways for you to take your practice to a deeper level. And for some, if they've mastered all the physical things that they feel that they need to or want to or desire to, how do we breathe even deeper and even more connected? How do we really focus on bandhas and dristi and all of these yogic applications that we can apply to our practice to take it to a new level. To be quite frank with all of you, you know, what makes a yoga practitioner really advanced is not the actual asana pose. I don't look at someone who could do handstand more advanced than someone who's in easy pose, who's really in the present, focusing on all the things that bring them to the present. The breath, the dristi, the bandhas, the grounding, the connection, the being able to escape and and get quiet and introspective. To me, that person's practicing yoga. And I don't know if the person doing the handstand is practicing yoga or gymnastics. I have no clue, right? And just a little fun, fun little tip. You know, there is a purpose for the similarities that we see in yoga when it comes to dance and gymnastics. It's it's not by accident, very much by design. Um, in a particular lineage of yoga, which has grown to become ashtanga, right, which means eight limbs um, in Sanskrit anyway, but it's a set series that has like three to four um, levels to the set series. So the series just keep getting more and more challenging physically, which 
um, is supposed to support you more and more with your moving meditation and your ability to really get deep into the philosophy. And it is a philosophy. There's chanting and there's prayer and there's a lot that goes on in that lineage. And I used to really love practicing this particular lineage. And, you know, there's a area in India called Mysore, which really... Um, is like the the home or the birth of this particular lineage. But long story short, there they uh, East Indian yogis went to Germany at some point, right? They were teaching German soldiers, such a hard word for me personally to say, um, to be more present, to meditate, to calm the body. And in turn, they picked up these gymnastic moves like handstand and headstand and was able to compile this into these series. So just a little fun fact there that that there is a rhyme or reason to, you know, why that feels like, wow, this is this is so similar if you do come from a background such as like a gymnastics. So all those things were combined. And then over the years, of course, you know, as yoga made its way to the U.S. and to Western society, you know, new things were formed, new lineages, new asana postures, you know, different influences. Remember, yoga is not a religion, it's a philosophy. But there were times where yoga was really practiced by or practiced by really religious people. There were times where yoga was considered like an outcast practice. There were times where women were not allowed to practice. There were other times where it was like 13-year-old East Indian, you know, skinny, lanky, limbed boys um, were the only ones that were practicing. So um, there's a lot of influence as to how the poses came about. And of course, and this is just in the East Indian lineage, um, but as I mentioned earlier, you know, there's there's Japanese influences, there's Chinese influences, there's Egyptian and African influences, and of course, Western, European, uh, United States, and so on and so forth influences at this point. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, try not to be too dogmatic about any of it. All right, so we discussed ailments and injuries, right? And we're going to discuss that for the next several months anyway. And let's talk about the nervous system. Now, in my estimation and and in study, the nervous system's real main primary goal in life is to keep us alive, you know? And so if you study the brain, you know that there's an old amygdala brain, right? Old lizard brain, as they call it. And it's the back of the brain right before it connects through the back of the neck to the spine, right? And that's your amygdala. And that is really what our animal instinct is grown from, right? All animals have this uh, connection, right? And... When we think about the amygdala, the old brain, it is going to be activated when any survival response is warranted. And for some, a, re a survival response may be something that's really like a bona fide or definite danger point. And for others, especially those who have suffered from trauma, they may tend to be more activated by anything that has a similarity through the mind's eye to something that is dangerous, right? So for one person, it is actually seeing a bear, tiger, lion, whatever, in my case, cockroach, right? And for others, it may be like a shadow that 
in their mind, it looks like a scary robber, but turns out to be, you know, um, the wind blowing a leaf by or whatever. So again, another spectrum. With that said, when we have the survival responses, we go into fight, flight, or freeze. There's others, especially when we start to talk about somatically how the body processes trauma. But when we're thinking about just the nervous system and how the brain processes information, then these are the three main responses. So we fight, we flight, or we freeze. So we we fight for our lives, we run away from danger, or we freeze and don't know what to do. And, you know, have you ever seen a little bunny just freeze and like, don't see me, don't try to come get me. So sometimes if you're too close to a bunny, it'll just freeze hoping to become like one with the world and what like a little rock and you just go about your business. Or if it feels like you're not buying that story, it might try to run, right? I haven't seen a bunny fight yet, but maybe it fights another bunny. I have no clue. But the point being is that our nervous system is our survival basically survival guide. And so I want you to think about it like this. When our body is doing something new, we have to condition the body that it is safe and it is on purpose. Otherwise, little things will pop up, whether you know it or not, unbeknownst to you, and our body's own infinite wisdom to try to keep us alive. So here's some examples. Let's say you were out of nowhere, you just took off sprinting is, you know, you don't practice sprinting every day. You didn't see a scary lion. You just decide one minute you're standing there, the next minute you're sprinting, okay? So, and let's say you're hyperventilating and you're really like, <gasps> you don't have any technique. You don't have any, like, you just took off running. You just wanted to see if you could beat your dog. I don't know, <laughs> right? Well, you might later feel really tired. You might feel really sore. You might get a lit cramp in the leg. Your body is basically saying, uh, I don't know why you did that. You used all your adrenaline. You depleted all your glucose in your muscles. And we don't want you to ever do that again. So we want you to remember that this pain you're feeling right now or this fatigue or this disconnection is a reminder that we don't like the sprinting that you did. Now, imagine if you decide, I'm just going to do a little bit of fast walking, I'm going to do a little slow jogging, and I'm going to do a little bit of sprinting, and I'm going to really focus on my breath, and I'm going to paint a smile on my face, you know, your nervous system goes, wait a minute, okay, all right, I see what we're doing here, inch by inch, little by little, moment by moment, day by day, you know, you kind of lead, lead up to that sprinting moment versus you see something scary and you just flight, right? You take off running and all your adrenaline does everything it needs to do to protect you. And we want that. That's why people become sometimes like 10 times stronger, 10 times faster, whatever it may be when they're fighting for their lives for real, right? It's because the body will do whatever it needs to do to protect you in that moment, provided that it has a general consensus of what's happening. And if you don't give your body some information to go off of, it will automatically go into survival and it will organize itself from the amygdala instead of from the frontal lobe where you have all your information and knowledge and you know, what makes humans different from every other mammal is our awareness of being able to foresee the future and understand and ask the why, right? So 
Imagine you're in warrior three or any one-legged balance in yoga class, you know, tree pose, it doesn't matter. The first time you do it, it might not feel really strong and stable unless, of course, this is a part of your normal practice in other areas and your body's made a connection that even though it's never done a tree pose before, you have been on one leg before and this is not a big deal for you. But perhaps just for point of this um, exercise, let's just say you or someone else has never really made it a point in their life to just randomly balance on one leg. <laughs> you know, like this isn't something people do usually when they become an adult for any reason. And so the first time you're in class, you're standing on this thin mat, you're barefoot, you're in community, you're doing something new, and now you're standing on one foot and it's a challenge. You might not be able to do it for very long. You're brain might get really busy, whatever the case may be. Well, your nervous system's probably starting to tense up your muscles to protect your body. It doesn't know what you're doing. It doesn't know if you're going to take off running, if you're going to fall, if you're on the edge of a cliff. You know, I always make this joke that if you're in warrior three, for instance, your body, if you're not breathing with intention and you find yourself like getting anxiety inside the body and you're like, you know, you're not you're breathing a little bit more superficially. Your body is like, I'm on a cliff. I'm going to die. And I see this a lot with students, rather young um, adolescents, you know, under 18 kids or even adults when they're doing like their first head or handstands, even if they have a wall present, even if they have a spotter. I consider myself a great spotter. I can spot a 250-pound man. Um But your body freaks out. It doesn't understand why you're going upside down. Why are you doing this? And for some, fear kicks in, right? That survival response. And they either want to stop, they start sweating, they get frustrated, they get angry, or their body gets weak, right? Which is like a freeze complex. The muscles just go jello, which is why a lot of times when I'm teaching class, I'm like, no spaghetti arms. It's not because I want you to be powerful and you have to do it and do 100 planks, you know. It's more like we want to teach the body that this isn't a a response, right? Like we don't want to fight this. We don't want to give up or go into freeze. And then all of a sudden you're like not able to carry your own body weight. That's probably because your body is creating a little anxiety. And so how do we get out of that? Well, breath work is number one, but it's not always easy to do, right? If you're activated, you're a little nervous, you're scared, whatever the pose may be, you know, it doesn't take a handstand to freak people out. You know, people going into down dog can be very scary for the first time. It's like, this is weird, or I don't know, am I going to fall on my head? Um, there are times where I'm working with a student and I'm like, the worst thing can happen is you're going to end up on your butt, but you're probably not going to like crack all your bones. <laughs> you know, like that's probably not going to happen. So, um, but you know, the body and the brain, they don't believe that. Like in their mind, they're going to hurt themselves and they're not going to handle just falling and smashing on their bum. Imagine crow pose. A lot of students feel like I'm just going to smash my face here. And I always tell them, Worst case scenario, you just bunk your head. You'll be fine. And I I actually teach my students how to fall gracefully. Like, how do you fall so you don't just all of a sudden just collapse onto the ground and thump? How do you slowly come down onto your head or to your side body or into your tail, right? So sometimes teaching the pose is teaching how to safely exit it, especially if it is a balancing posture. Okay, so 
Other than breathing, a great way to trick your nervous system, believe it or not, is to paint a smile on your face, (laughs) even if it's not true. So I tend to teach with a little bit of a different way of going about it. Now, obviously, if I'm teaching in a certain, um, I guess, to a certain community or in a certain setting, I definitely know how to read the room and I definitely know how to um, teach to my audience. But if I'm teaching in an all levels, you know, studio fun practice kind of thing, I try to make my students laugh and I'm very, you know, cheesy at my my attempt and my approach. But it typically works even if they're not laughing with me, they're laughing at me. And either way, I'm good with it because they're regulating their nervous system. They're calming down their nervous system, which means their spine's going to be fluid. Their body's going to be relaxed. They're not going to go into their old lizard brain, their amygdala, and they're going to just have a good time. And when you're having a good time, your body tends to memorize the things it needs to do to get better and stronger and more efficient and effective. And that's why over time, things improve. For some, things improve in one way and for others, things improve in another, but everyone's constantly improving. And it's forward moving progress when you are in a state of relaxation and not literal, right? Where you're like asleep, although that is beautiful and wonderful. But when your body just is enjoying what it's doing, it's like hanging out at a picnic with all the people you love and everyone is vibing and no one is offending and you just get to be and the sun is shining in a way that makes you feel good and comfortable. You're not too hot. You're not too cold. It's like the perfect scene. That's what we want the body to think is happening. And whenever it kind of triggers out of it, because it's going to trigger out of it like in every breath, every second, right? The moment you do something new, the moment your brain doesn't know what's coming next, it triggers out of it. But then we just trigger it back. So that is something that when we are practicing yoga, the reason why it is a relaxation modality and discipline is because we are activating the parasympathetic nervous system. We are encouraging rest and digest. And digestion, that part of the body and the mechanics of it, I am going to break it down in the next session coming up because that is really what is helping fuel this beautiful practice that gets us into that state of meditation. Now, when we think about digestion, parasympathetic nervous system, honoring our body, the ailments, the injuries, the the tightness, all of that. We're starting to create a really beautiful stew, aren't we? We're really starting to pay attention to like how much seasoning we want and, you know, <laughs> how watery it is and how thick it is and what it is that we need. You know, my stew might be different than your stew, but it's the stew that we all want. And so when we think about that, One of the things to consider is, you know, we bring our hormones and emotions, our inconsistencies, our imbalances, all of that come with us on the mat. And we are trying throughout 60 minutes in a typical practice to regulate all these systems that are way smarter than we have any clue about that have ancient, ancient responses that are in our cells through our DNA. And here we are trying to now, you know, organize and manifest the effects that we want 
the body to have. And we are going to mostly get it wrong because we are always a step behind what our body is doing and wanting to do and how it wants to do it. And we just have to respect that and then keep bringing awareness to what's happening in the body. Keep coming up with new ideas and ways to appreciate where you are and also just acknowledge that Sometimes you're just not going to know and and just have that mystery and that mystique. But ultimately, as long as you realize that there isn't an answer, but there is always a question, then you can dive deep into the why. What is the why? Where's the opportunity for you to lean into inviting balance into your life? So instead of focusing on the bad knees, quote unquote, how do we release those knees? How do we align other parts of the body so that the knees aren't doing all the work? What postures and poses can I practice and learn about so that I can give my knees a rest but still enjoy the practice of yoga or in particular asana, right? How do I move my body because what's in motion stays in motion? So the the alternative alternative option is obsolete. We all have to move. We all are hoping to be able to have the capacity to move until our final day on this realm, right? So I always tell my students that, you know, you might come to yoga for relaxation. You might come to yoga for fitness. It doesn't matter why you came, but yoga is the gift that keeps on giving. It's the gift that shows up when you need it the most. It's the being able to bend down and pick up something. It's the not having a hip break. It's the fluidity in the spine and the posture. It's the being able to stretch through the body in a way that's safe and not triggering to the muscles and cramping to the muscles. It's the being able to breathe in such a way that you have a strong diaphragm and respiratory system, which means you're pushing oxygen through the blood more efficiently, which means you are sending blood to all organs and areas of the body and basically giving every cell of your body a delicious oxygen hug. It means that you are honoring your body in ways that you didn't even imagine all because you were hoping to burn some calories or get a good night's rest, which all will show up as well, but that's so not the point and may not even scientifically matter in the grander scheme of things. Yoga is the gift that keeps on giving. All right, so with that said, I wanna talk about yogic breath And we'll dive deeper into this because we did a really great exercise in class. And I will invite you to bring this exercise into your life and the lives of others. This is a gentle exercise that you can even introduce to someone who has chronic respiratory issues or diseases, asthma, ailments, things like that. But just encourage the person to honor their body. And if they are short of breath or, you know, get dizzy or feel like they're going to pass out or cannot breathe at all during the exercise, obviously abort the mission, right? So you take a balloon or a straw. This session, we did a balloon. Next session, we'll be utilizing straws. Both things are easy to obtain. Straws for some are way easier than balloons. And basically what you're doing is you're blowing into the balloon, you know, no rhyme or reason. We're going to actually add activities that make this a little bit more, um, I think, intentional with 
with certain exercises over the next several months. But during this first session, we just took a simple balloon and we just blew into it. We did it lying down. We did it with the bottoms of our feet together with our knees splayed out to the side with our pelvis open and our hips externally rotated, which made it more challenging, which is not something I would advise you to do unless you practice yoga regularly. So if you're just doing this with like a friend or a loved one, have them just sit in a chair, have them sit with their pelvis nice and neutralized, so not tilted up and not tilted back, right? Just sitting nice and comfortably, preferably with their spine up against the wall or up against the chair, the back of the chair but not always possible, right? Just the way chairs are made and bodies are made. Um, but as, as lengthened through the side body, up and under the armpit as humanly possible, ideally, right? And then um, just blow into the balloon and see what that's like. You blow in and then you let the air escape your body. We didn't talk about blowing, um, exhaling out of your nose or exhaling your out of your mouth. We didn't go into that. You can practice that. You could practice what it feels like to inhale, um, or excuse me, uh, blow into the balloon and then exhale um, out of the nose. Just play around with it. It's mostly an exercise to get your lungs working, to get your diaphragm working, and to start to not focus on what type of breathing you're doing, but just really encouraging those muscles. Technically, everyone should do this at least once a week, um, just to really like build that muscle. Muscle, it's it's another muscle to build. And unless you're doing really intense pratyama practice, yogic breath, you may not even be able to get the same effect that that resistance that the balloon is giving can give. When we do the straw next session, we'll be able to see like the differences there and how to restrict it and make it a little bit more intense as well. So that was one exercise. Now, since we are talking about yogic breath and we've I've weaved it in throughout today's lesson, I do want to talk about hydration. The more intentional we're breathing, the more we need to hydrate. Also, the more inversions we do in yoga, which are several throughout class, although there's lots of different ways to not take the inversion, right? Let me give you an example. You could be in downward facing dog. Your eyes can be toward the back of you, your belly button off the tip of your nose for dristi. And you're upside down, heads below heart, blood's rushing to your mind. It's supposed to calm your mind. It's, a, it's a, an effect that blood has when it's rushing to the brain. But for some, especially those who have high blood pressure already, this may not be that advantageous, especially if your body's not used to it. And especially if you just run into the first down dog, you know, 10, 15 minutes into a practice, you're upside down, right? That might be a lot. And it might take longer than people give themselves credit for to come out of that state. And then if you add a balancing pose right after a downward facing dog and you're still dizzy from being upside down, well, doesn't it make sense? It's a little bit harder to balance, right? Okay, so we wanna make sure we are super hydrated before class, during class, and after class. Now, as I mentioned in the live session, there are many lineages, a few in particular, a few that I used to subscribe to and still love and honor, that do not encourage drinking water while you practice. There are physiological reasons for that, such as being able to bind and compress and reorganize the organs by utilizing, you know, like your elbow or your knee. And, and there's things that, that encourage the, um, 
the dryness of the body to be able to anticipate those movements. And, and I really believe that's, you know, you have to be really at your tip top health from the point that you think you are, because we just, you know, you just never really know. But it's not a it's not a game everybody should play, so to speak. It is always better to err on the side of sipping water throughout practice, little by little. Of course, you don't want to take gulps. You don't want to have a bunch of water rolling in your belly like a little fishbowl. But you want to be hydrated at least before class and, of course, after Um, even if you're not sipping throughout. But if you're thirsty, you need to drink the water. And if you're thirsty, then that means you're not hydrating enough. And here's the problem. Not only will that raise your blood pressure, and if you already have high blood pressure and then you're going upside down, or you're resting on your head in any capacity, such as a headstand, this could actually be a recipe for danger. And it has been in other cases. And there there have been deaths um, reported during headstand and it wasn't because the neck was broken, but because the blood pressure and the and and of course, I don't know enough about, you know, the, what that person's health history was. But I can tell you that it's happened more than once. It's not happened hundreds of times, but it's enough for it to be something that we need to pay attention to. And we want to make sure the student, yourself and others understand that it's it's really important for them to take this practice as seriously as anything else. And where in life are you going upside down and resting on the crown of your head anyway, if you choose to do those poses? And you don't have to be in headstand to do that, right? You can be um, in down dog, you can be in dolphin, you can be in other poses, you can be in child's pose even, or egg pose, um, where you're resting on your head. You know, you could be doing an arm balance and come down on your head. So I don't say this to get anybody nervous or to exclude these postures, but rather to educate and realize that there's always a consequence, good and bad of everything we do, right? I mean, it is a a, a physics law. <laughs> so let's honor that. So with that said, we want to be mindful of hydration. Keep in mind There will and has probably been in your own personal practice where you, you know, really went hard, you did a big vinyasa flow, or you did hot yoga, or you were just really hot in yoga class, or your hormones were off, it doesn't matter, right? And like the next day, you had like the splitting migraine or headache, or you just felt really like your muscles were super sore, you just felt crazy fatigued. Now, we did talk about the nervous system overreacting to protect you, but also, you know, you could just be really dehydrated and you really should pay attention to the foods you eat, the hydration, you know, the medicines you take and all of that and honor your body. And for those who have hormone fluctuations, you know, rather it's through your menstrual cycle or any other reason, then also keep in mind that that could have a big effect, especially in inversions. So hydration is really a beautiful way of nature giving us the medicine we need. And we can fast on food and live. And some people can live a really long time fasting, but no one can go very long without the good old fashioned H2O. So I always tell my students that getting a practicing yoga is like getting a deep tissue massage and you are moving things around. You are, you know, restructuring, recreating and doing lots of different things inside and out. You are hopefully encouraging digestion, which 
the more we digest the food that we've eaten and so on and so forth, the better our rest cycles are. Our body's not doing a bunch of work. The liver's not, you know, the liver's the filter of the body and it's not like filtering every single thing because you just keep dumping dirt through your filtration system, <laughs> you know? Um, so the body's working in a beautiful, connected way. So we'll talk more about that um, over the next sessions as well. Alrighty, so I want to talk about some foundational poses, and then I want to talk about the anatomy of a yoga class. And more or less, this will conclude session one's lecture. Now, the foundational poses that you will start to see show up, you know, in all the yoga classes, but also how they interlink and connect is really awesome. Now, I had you do some exercises in your mind, or maybe even you did them. And if you were live, we went into probably 45 minutes of just this alone detail. So live sessions are always better, right? And maybe I could follow this up with a video at some point. But for now, we will go over this over and again throughout all the sessions, so don't you worry. If you can imagine standing mountain pose, Tadasana, right? Seated variation of mountain pose, staff pose, or Dandasana. Or you can imagine tabletop, right? And how it can transfer to plank. Or you can imagine down dog, which is, is a really fundamental pose, but that can transfer to tabletop or roll into plank as well. Okay, so we're just going to focus on those for now. So I want you to take yourself to mountain pose and I'm going to walk you through positioning your body in mountain pose. So just find yourself standing. You can be where your feet are together, hip distance apart or even wider. The wider your stance, the more balance and grounding you will have physically and just a little anatomical side note, females have wider pelvises and pelvic girdle, so hips, pelvis, than men on average. And of course, it's to help uh, facilitate giving birth to another human, <laughs> you know. So um, keeping your legs together may not be an anatomical option for some. You know, your thighs, your hips may not appreciate that. So even if you can do it, it may actually start to put strain on your knees because you're holding your legs together, trying to touch everything together, and the knees will start to lock up intuitively to help support the muscles that are too tight in the hips and possibly throughout the front and back of the thighs, right? So the quadriceps and the hamstrings. And so the knees will try to support that. And that's what I was talking about earlier. We want to give the knees as much of a relief as humanly possible because knees are one of the few areas of the body that once we've injured them or they, they have inconsistencies, it's really hard to get that back. There's not like a lot of muscle building for the knees that we can really encourage them to get healthier. So we really want to protect them at all costs along with the spine, right? Spine in the back kind of thing. All right. So I usually advise hip distance apart unless, you know, your body feels really comfortable, suit it together. And I'm not going to go into the internal and external rotations of what we want or what we're looking for, because in mountain pose, I think that there is 
some other areas such as not only supporting the knees, but supporting the spine that I think takes precedent over if you have a turnout or a turn in through your thighs or through your hips, okay? Doesn't mean that you won't favor one over the other and we won't talk about that, but it's just not a main concern for me when I'm teaching mountain pose. So from mountain pose, we're going to go from root to rise, right? We always want to find out what our pillar is. So what's touching the earth? That's where our focus goes first. So then I like to pick up each toe on both of my feet and then start to drop a toe one by one, grounding my feet into the earth. And then I try to take that same energy all through my feet, right? I try to lift through my arches, lift through my feet, but also ground them at the same time. So there's this grounding but airy feeling that should sort of show up for you. And if at any time I mention something and it doesn't show up for you, or it doesn't resonate, that is okay, okay? There's no wrong way to eat a Kit Kat. And your body or your awareness of how your body feels may show up a little bit different. Earlier in today's lecture, I was talking about trauma in the body and I didn't want to go too off script, but ultimately one of the biggest downsides when we've experienced trauma in the body or trauma that tends to show up in the body, doesn't have to be direct trauma to the body, let me make that clear, is we sometimes dissociate so we may not even feel anything. Like someone may come and tap us and someone may jump and be startled and someone may not feel that at all. Um... Or we just do not have the mental awareness to take at this time to take our awareness to what the bottom of our feet is doing, right? We're just, it's been a really long time and we've had to protect our psyche for whatever reason. And we may not have that connection or your students may not have that connection. So we want to also make sure that if someone is like really stressing out about, well, I don't understand. That's why we pick up the toes and we put them down and we do a somatic physical practice because that's going to be easier than, can you feel the bottoms of your feet lifting? Like that cue is only going to apply to someone who can dig deeper into the imagination of what that feeling is or actually feel it. Whereas most of us can feel our toes spreading or lifting even if we you know, don't have like a deeper connection beyond that, okay? So just be mindful of that too. We're using a lot of cueing and language. Um, try to have an anatomical cue married or mixed in with non-anatomical or physiological cues. So it's fine to, to use some yoga speak, as I call it, like metaphors and, <laughs> you know, um, esoteric thoughts and ideas and energy concepts and all of that. That's awesome. But we also want to be mindful that some people cannot, like, meet you there. And then they're going to feel excluded from their body being able to receive the benefit which is not true either because the body doesn't really even need you to think about what it's doing to receive, although we want to invite that benefit to the body um, a lot quicker, right? Okay, so you're standing hip distance apart, further or closer. I want you to, and you're, you've already um, grounded your feet. So now I want you to take your awareness to the back of your knees and soften them. Maybe it's a bend in the knees. Maybe it's just an energetic softening. Maybe it's just a lifting through the knees, but you just sort of feel that strain release. 
Now draw your awareness to your glutes and try to allow them to relax. You can place one hand on top of your belly, the other hand behind you. I like to pray, place one hand, the hand that's behind me, um, instead of using my palm, I use the top of my hand so I don't have that rotation in my wrist. And then my front hand, the palm is placing and I sandwich my belly and back and spine in between the two hands. Just like we did with our hands on our hips. You can also do this with your hands on your hips as well. And I like to just do my 12 o'clock, 6 o'clock and neutralize my pelvis and then relax my glutes. Release my hands by my side or into, well, for now, by your side. And then from here, I want you to envision your side body lengthening and someone you love and trust comes up behind you and lifts you up under your armpit like they're trying to pick you up from behind, but only they're encouraging your side body to lengthen right under your armpits. As you feel that, draw your shoulders into your ears, float them down behind you, lift your heart. And then notice where your nose is. Is your nose pointing to the sky or to the earth? And then like Goldilocks, take it forward and just right. Your chin is not too tucked. You can breathe. The crown of your head is floating toward the sun. And your heart is lifted because you are a mountain. And you're very, very intentional in this pose. Your hands can go out in front, um, palms facing forward, fingers spread, fingers together, palms on your side, hands relaxed or heart center or anything else here. Most importantly, you're just going to memorize in your body how intentional you are about mountain pose, how it feels very different than you just standing in line at the grocer, leaning to one side or not how you feel neutralized through the spine, but also how challenging it feels to hold this posture. It's not easy. And now notice your breath. If you're having a tough time with the thoughts in your mind, take your eye gazes off the tip of your nose or to a focal point and just take a moment and be present with your breath. If you stay in this pose long enough, with every inhalation, you might feel like you're floating toward the sky. And with every exhalation, you might feel like you're grounding even closer to the earth. It's nice and subtle. Sometimes it can make you feel even dizzy because you're so involved in that floating of the breath. So now I want you to bring yourself back to your normal natural breath. Let your body relax. Just stand normal. And then slowly make your way all the way to the earth and seated. And we're going to take the seated variation of that exact pose. So take your legs out in front of you. Again, we're not going to talk about the internal and external rotation of the hips and thighs. So basically your knees may be splaying away from each other or toward each other. We're not going to talk about that in this particular exercise. We'll get there later. And your Legs are lengthened out in front of you. If your knees are indeed hurting you, however, at this point, you can always place a block or something under your legs and you can just add some support, like a little pillar support there. So that's always an option. Now, imagine how you were standing and now you're seated. And so now from your tail to your heels of your feet, you are grounding into the earth. So now that is what's grounding you instead of just your feet actually more body parts 
more parts of your body, I should say. That's probably makes more sense. And whatever's touching the earth, I want you to really press it into the mat. Now your toes might be just like doing their own thing. I invite you to point them toward the sky and then flex them toward your nose. Now, when we flex our toes anytime our legs are extended, we tend to soften the knees underneath. Now, if you have a block underneath your knees right now, then they're softened from the block and they're resting on the block. But if not, that's going to sort of draw that awareness away from your kneecaps. Now, do the exercise and point your toes away from your nose toward the bottom of your mat. You can see your muscles activating through your knee, your knees tensed up, activated and not relaxed. So just so you can see that difference. So now go back to the flex toes, flex feet, and you can feel all of your body pressing into the earth. Now imagine, bring your hands to your hips. It's going to feel a little difficult doing it seated, but just so you can make sure your hips are pointing forward, right? Sometimes we tend to like lift a hip up or now if anatomically that's how your body works, then honor that. And then we're going to do that same exercise. We're going to rise through the side body, draw the shoulders into the ears, float them behind us and let the hands float down to the mat. And then pay attention to where your chin and nose is. Everything is neutral and forward. Crown of your head floats to the sky. And now you've just created mountain pose and a seated variation. Now you can imagine if you draw the bottoms of the feet together and the knees play out to the side and there's an external rotation through your pelvis, through your hips, through your thighs, but you're still in that same posture. So just to give you reference there. So the idea is that most of the time, unless otherwise noted, you are holding the same stance in all seated postures, ideally, right? Now imagine Shavasana, corpse pose. It's the same thing. You're not just lying there, although, yeah, you are, right? But in the full polarity of the pose, you're really extended. You're really grounded every inch of your body from the back of your head to the bottoms of or to the heels of your feet. You are grounding into the earth, which takes that pose into a whole different vibration, right? It's very intentional. All the muscles are activated and then you add in your breath work. And you can see that it makes the pose, as simple as the pose may be, more difficult, more challenging. So you actually don't need the most, you know, challenging poses you can imagine and think of and, and find. You can actually turn some of the most simple poses into more intentional movements and, and really connect with the practice in that way. Makes it really hard, right? And so anything that's touching the earth should really be grounded. You should always be lifting up and lengthening through your spine. We always want to grow an inch or two, right? We always want to draw our heart up unless we are flexing through the spine like a mad cat or happy cow, which we'll talk about in a second. So now go ahead and come onto all four. Find your tabletop. Draw your hands just under your shoulders, right? It'll, it'll add a better pillar than if your hands are too far ahead of you. And there's a time for that as well, like a stretchy kitty cat or happy baby or um, child's pose, I should say. But in this case, we want tabletop and we want our knees about hip distance apart, hands right under our shoulders. You can spread your fingers, press your palms into the mat. What's touching the earth? Bring your awareness. 
Are your toes tucked and those are touching the earth or the tops of your feet flat and that is touching the earth? And then we want to find a nice neutralized spine. Again, we're not going to talk about the internal and external rotation of the arms just yet. Press the mat away from you. No spaghetti arms, right? We want to convince the nervous system that we're activated and, and, and present. Intentional, I should say. And of course, you're always going to bring your awareness to your breath. And now step your right foot back and tuck it and lengthen your leg. And now step your left foot back and tuck it and left lengthen your leg and you should be in plank. Now drop your right knee. Now your right knee dropped and now imagine the back of your body as a bridge and your right knee is a pillar that's helping that bridge. Now lift that right knee. Now you're in a plank. Now drop your left knee and now you're back to your supported plank or bridge variation. And so if you are wondering if you how to find your perfect plank, right, for your body. So you're not sinking like a hammock or your tail's not like in a strange high, not down dog, but very stressful for your back pose. Then just drop a knee, lengthen through your spine, imagine the tabletop, and then pull up your knee and you should find your body's plank. So go ahead and drop both knees now and go into a child's pose. Take a moment, find a little relaxation. And when you're ready, you can tuck your toes, hover your knees, and float yourself to your first down dog. And we're not going to live here because I'm just taking you through the motions, but I just want you to acknowledge that you are in mountain pose, only your hands are on the earth this time. You're hinged at the hips and folded, right? Depending on how we do the internal and external rotations of the arms and legs, can inform how you do it in mountain pose or in dandasana or staff pose seated, as well as tabletop and plank. And we'll talk about all that later. So now you can come out of all of these and now you can see that technically, if you understand how to get your body into these poses anatomically, then you're going to be perfectly well suited to transition into side planks, into crow pose, into chaturanga, into dolphin, cobra, sphinx, you know, you're going to just see that you're doing similar things structurally, if that makes sense. You're supporting the neck, you're um, squaring up or neutralizing your shoulders, your hips, you're releasing your knees, you're lengthening through your side body so you can lengthen through your spine, you're activating your core by utilizing your yogic breath, which protects your spine and your lower back. You're stretching, but also not in a way that's going to challenge your muscles negatively, but rather positively, right? So the idea is that you're lengthening for the stretch. So instead of just reaching for something, right? Like you're just trying to touch your toes, so you're just reaching. No, you are lengthening and stretching and then reaching, right? And then that way, no matter if your arms are short or long, if your legs are short or long, whatever your body composition is, it's about lengthening to get to the pose and to get through the pose. It's not about reaching, stretching, or just having the right limbs to get you there by way of accident, right? Okay, so now we are going to conclude today's session with the anatomy of a yoga class. 
I'm going to go through this a little bit faster than obviously we did in live session because we are going to talk about it again in the next session and probably in many cases, all of the sessions. So I'm just going to go through the categories. This isn't the only way to think about it, but it is a very effective way to think about it at this point in, in your juncture. Now, if you've ever practiced a set series and you like to know what's coming next, there's a rhyme and reason for that. It's a, it's a self-regulatory way of practicing. You don't have to think about what's coming next because you've memorized what comes next because it's in a set sequence, right? Sort of like a shtanga or a bikram or even could be your way of teaching. Typically, I tend to teach in a way where my students probably can guesstimate what's coming next with a few variations that I might populate here and there. But for the most part, they have a general idea that this is my style of teaching and that's calming to the nervous system. But there's also enough surprise to keep them engaged in learning something new, but also not in a way where it feels like they're constantly looking for the next cue or looking up to see what I'm doing and they can never be present. So you'll learn that art of sequencing later. This is more of like the science of sequencing now. So we're just going to assume we're talking about a 60-minute class, but of course you can do a 10-minute practice and still add all these elements in this order. You just have to decide that you're going to do one thing instead of five things per element, right? So I have this dialed in with seven different elements, so lucky number seven. And the first element is just centering and grounding. And you can do this in a multitude of ways. You can have an intention or dedication, a mantra. You can utilize chanting. You can have a moment of silence or prayer or, in some cases, journaling even. You can have a meditation, which can look in any capacity as there's many, many ways to do meditation. It could be guided meditation. It could be private meditation, personal, quiet meditation. Um, there's a lot, lot of ways to do this. And then, of course, pratyama practice, right? So this is a nice way to center and ground. This can be five minutes, 10 minutes, depending on what it is you're doing. You can choose to do two, three, four elements, one element. And the point is, is that we make sure we sandwich the practice in with some really intentional somatic healing practices such as grounding techniques. And that's what makes yoga a healing modality, really, in my estimation. It's it's not the middle part where we're going through the flow or, or whatever it is that you're doing. It's really how we start and end because the nervous system is taking cues as to what is going on. And when we sandwich in whatever it is we're doing, whether difficult or not, and with grounding practices, then we are teaching our nervous system to show up in a new way, right? And this is true of all things. You know, starting your morning in a, in, in a grounding way, ending your day in a grounding way is going to look very different no matter what you do in the middle if you can manage those. It tells your mindset, it tells your subconscious that everything's okay, and you're made of peace. Imagine that. And that's where we really fight disease proactively is with peace. 
So we center and ground. And then number two is we warm up. And dynamic movement is typical, but not the only way, you know. But just some gentle movement of the body through gentle stretching movements or in some cases, sun salutations. And there's, you know, again, I won't go too deep into the poses and postures in this particular recording because we're going to talk about this in way great detail next session and beyond. So for now, just to put in your mind, because you're a practitioner, you've probably warmed up with sun salutations. Or in my case, when I teach yoga, I have completely altered the sun salutation um, way of being just because... There's a lot of different ways to kind of um, modify sun cells to where it's really palatable for everyone. Um, but essentially, there's a lot of dynamic movements and stretching that's going on with the breathing. So you do that for about five to 10 minutes, give or take. And then number three is what I call the body of the sequence or, you know, the actual main part of your plan, your class, your program. And you can theme this in a lot of different ways. You can theme it anatomically, meaning everything you do is to open up your hips. Everything you do is to, you know, open up your shoulders or to release back pain. I mean, you can, you know, do it from a therapeutic anatomical perspective like that. Or you can try to focus on getting the body used to inversions. You can focus on a peak pose or variations of peak poses, meaning like we're really going to focus on balancing today and we're going to do lots of different ways to get to like a main balance point. Um, and we'll talk about stuff like that because there's things you can do in the body to help you balance. Remember I mentioned if you have locked knees and you're dizzy from being upside down and then the next thing you know, someone's trying to put you in a balance pose and you're just wondering, why am I not doing this or I'm not capable. Um, there is a, an art to trying to encourage the body to lean into the balance when it's time to come. So we'll definitely be broaching that in really great detail, such as like opening up the hips and just lots of cool things to remind the body to prepare for other stuff, which if you think about it, makes sense, right? You don't want to just take off sprinting. So you can theme your class energetically, right? You can say we're working on heart openers, heart chakra. Um, you can theme the class men with mental um, health, right? We're, we're wanting to focus on self-care, positive affirmations. You know, there's lots of ways you can cue in a way that helps your students bring their attention back to that. You can theme your class on an experience, you know, um, utilizing vivid imagination and visualization techniques. So there's lots of fun ways to um, kind of sandwich in all the delicious innards of your sandwich, right? For me, PB&J. And then number four, after you've done the bulk of your sequencing or the bulk of the movement, then you want to slowly start to draw your awareness back to the floor, and this doesn't mean that an entire sequence can't be on the floor or the entire sequence can't be in a way that's I'm not mentioning. Again, this is um, a basic approach, but there are definitely, I've taught many a sequences 
that are floor-based um, with pretty much no standing poses or zero in some cases. Or you chair, chair yoga, yin yoga. I mean, there's a lot of yoga where it is floor-based. So even though I have seven um, concepts here, this could easily be just six if you took out the floor work. But if you left the floor work and you didn't want to take it out and you just wanted to re-appropriate um, it, you could say um, this is where you cool down um, with stretching in particular, with twists, um, maybe belly work. So we call that like prone work or supine work where you're on your back um, through the floor work or just really focusing on more static stretching. You know, this is appropriate time to add in static stretching since we already did the dynamic warm up, the body's loose, you know, the muscles are not, you know, going to tense up and, and tighten on you. So this is a good time to hold poses longer, um, stretch more intentionally, do more twists through the body. This also doesn't mean that floor work can't be challenging, right? Think of shoulder stand, which is a very advanced pose. Think about plow, think about fish, all very advanced poses, right? So this isn't just that this is like a total cool down if you don't want it to be, but it also can be, right? Okay. And then there's other balances too that that are completely on the floor. Um, so it's how you want to go about this part. And then if not already, then you can go into a more intentional cool down. And this is where, you know, maybe you're hanging out in a happy baby or a side body twist of sort, you know, you, this is where you're really intentional about not getting the heart rate, heart rate higher. So even though you're on the floor and there was more challenging floor postures to utilize, we want to go opposite of that so we can start to calm the body down. And then of course we have final relaxation, Shavasana or, um, you know, fetal posture or maybe a combination of different things. But most importantly, you don't ever skip this part because again, this is a grounding exercise and this teaches the nervous system that everything that came before it was intentional, meaningful, and appropriate. And I mean that in the way of from the nervous system's point of view, not from the actual physical, you know, exertion part, but just the body really does need to feel like, okay, this is okay. Like I'm laying here now, I'm calm. And there's lots of things you can do before or after Shavasana. Leading from cool down to Shavasana, you could do intentional pratyama practice. You could do intentional meditation here. You can repeat how you start at class with how you end class. You can leave your students in Shavasana and in class in that way. You can Ask your students through a series of ways of bringing them back to a seated posture and you can close the class in, in beautiful ways that are, you know, poetic or lyrical or singing bowls or anything. Um, and you can create a beautiful moment that allows the closing to have gratitude and, and real connection and just reminding the student of why they've chosen yoga um, to be a part of their life, essentially, right? There's a lot of things that we all could be doing physically with our bodies. We could be doing and and may do in tandem and, and as well, right? We may also do Pilates. We may also go on jogs. We may also swim. And But why are we doing yoga? And why is yoga a little bit different 
And it's because of that mind, body, and potential for spiritual connection, right? It's what makes the practice a true somatic healing therapeutic practice in a lot of ways um, when we think about it from this perspective. Um, Doesn't mean that yoga can't be utilized in other ways um, and that this is the only formula and you have to open your class away and and end it this way. But I I can definitely guarantee that if you take into account a way for the nervous system to appreciate the physical awakening that the body just received, that the mind was connected to, then it's going to be so advantageous for the student, for yourself. So that was everything um, other than what I just discussed in this lecture. In live session, we did some really cool bonding exercise. Uh, One was the kind eyes exercise where you envision someone who you love who just had the kindest eyes in your mind. And then you try to encourage yourself to have those kind eyes. And as well as imagining a child coming up to you out of nowhere and needs help and the type of kind eyes you would offer that child to make them feel safe and secure and like they chose the right person, right, to help them. And then we practiced utilizing those kind eyes on each other by just, you know, circling each other and offering kind eyes without, in most cases, without using verbal cues to compliment our kind eyes, which was really hard, especially upon meeting someone for the first time. And then also how to offer, you know, body language, such as smiling to encourage those eyes to be more kind. And then we practice what I call ojos, right? And it's where, you know, you practice giving your your uh, another human a dirty look. And then we did silly faces. And really, my point was one, you know, we're not too cool for school, <laughs> you know, but also forget everything you're going to learn in this 200 hour yoga teacher training or immersion, right? If you cannot encourage yourself to exhibit kind emotions through your facial expressions and body language and make yourself available as a safe space and to be able to hold space for others and create sacred space for others, then you are going to definitely have a challenge in sharing this beautiful practice of yoga with others in the capacity that you may want to. And I've met many of yoga teachers who have a part of this very needed trait, skill, talent. Well, it's a skill. It's You can learn it if it's not natural for you. And I'm hoping to teach it to you. And it's, it's, disconcerting considering that I need to be feeling as safe and secure as I can so that I can invite the healing mechanisms that yoga offers intuitively into my practice. But I can't feel like that on top of being in a public place 
in most cases, right? I'm not practicing at home where I feel really safe and secure. I can't control my environment in this public space. I'm with strangers. I'm with people I know, but I'm with strangers. You know, I can't control everything in the space around me. So I need to feel as safe and secure as possible. And the yoga teacher, the guide, the facilitator is 100% encouraged to help offer this opportunity to their students to the best of their ability. And kind eyes, a smile, eye contact, connection are all beautiful and what I deem to be simple, authentic ways to connect with others. You do not need to know what that person's favorite color is and you know where they went to college and how many kids they have to connect with them. You have to imagine they're that kid running up to you looking for help and you want that kid to feel safe in that split second. And I can tell you when we did this exercise, when we did this exercise, when I brought up the version where the kid runs up, everyone intuitively got kind eyes and smiles and and soft facial expressions and calmness in their body immediately. And I made a very verbal note to everyone about it. Whereas before, it was it I saw a lot of struggle, but you may be challenged to I am challenging you to notice when you take yoga, are you receiving that connection? And are you giving that connection because you're also called to a very important responsibility and action. When you are the student in class, you should be able to co-regulate with other students and offer safe and sacred space as well. You have the knowledge and the awareness and you have no excuses now. So even though I know just a couple of days ago, you probably could sneak into class and stay in the corner and quietly do your practice. And I'm not saying you can never do that again, but I'm saying you can also offer kind eyes, a gentle smile, a little connection to the humans around you. And when in doubt, just imagine that kid needing help. So that will conclude today's lesson. I hope that you enjoyed every bit of this. It was such an honor for me to guide you. We have several more sessions together throughout this training. And if you have any questions, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. Namaste. Thank you so much for listening to yoga podcast created in 2018 did you know that you can listen to hundreds of free audio yoga classes dedicated to meditation mindfulness practices and of course asana as well as tons of amazing information for your personal and sacred practice on and off of the mat check out today's show notes for a link to my website lovebreezybreeyoga.com 
You will also find a link to iloveyogatherapy.org, a new online resource center for yoga therapy and somatic healing practices and techniques. You will find a ton of information, videos and articles and case studies if you are interested in learning more about yoga therapy and Ayurvedic practices. Thank you so much for listening. Go in peace. Namaste.